every single time we launch something new, we discover something new about our products or brands. I think that's one of the also the, the keys is we thought we had the answers. Like if you told me four years ago, like what we should do with our positioning of our brand and our products, I'd be like, no, 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 no. We have it. We have it down. But then you just, you, you, the market will give you the answers to where you need to go. Like it's a winding road and you got to kind of let the, the market organically take you to where you need to go. Welcome to the Business Muscle Podcast, where we empower entrepreneurs to transform their businesses into unstoppable empires. I'm Elise, CPA turned serial entrepreneur. And I'm Arielle, a seasoned physical therapist and business owner. We're two female entrepreneurs with a passion for helping small business owners like you achieve massive success. With our combined expertise, we've scaled to an impressive seven businesses in less than seven years. And guess what? Each of them was profitable right from the start. But we didn't stop there. We're here to share our secrets, strategies, and insider tips to help you turn your business into a thriving reality. And hey, we're not just all about business. As a physical therapist and fitness instructor, we'll also sprinkle in some fitness and wellness tips along the way. Join us on the Business Muscle Podcast every Monday as we guide you step-by-step towards financial freedom and building the business of your dreams. It's time to level up your business. Get ready to flex your business muscle. Hey guys, Ariel here. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to take a second to tell you about our free 30-minute webinar that we're hosting on January 25th at 7.30 p.m. called Why You Should Be a Cash-Based PT. So I was a physical therapist in the insurance world for years before I opened my own business. I was seeing multiple patients at the same time. I was limited in what I could do because of the restrictions around insurance, and I was severely underpaid. When I finally took the leap to open my own business, I could finally see just one patient at a time. So my patients all started getting better faster because I could use all the skills in my toolbox without any restrictions. We ended up being cash flow positive in the first month and hit six figures at just four months in. This webinar covers all the reasons why you can and should be a cash-based PT and why it might not be as hard as you think to get started. So if you are a PT or you know a PT who's interested, definitely send them our way. And if you can't make it on January 25th, you can catch the replay and watch it anytime. We're going to link in the show notes how to register. We'll hope to see you there. Let's get to the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Muscle Podcast. Today, we welcome Manny Lubin to the podcast. Manny is co-founder of Slate Milk, a high-protein, lactose-free chocolate milk company whose mission is to give chocolate milk a clean slate. Since founding in 2019, Slate has made an appearance on ABC's Shark Tank, grown to 50 employees, has raised over $25 million, and is now in 13,000 stores. Manny, welcome to the podcast. So before we get started, why don't you tell us what Slate Milk is? So we like to say we sell strength. We, we sell the feeling of being strong. In terms of products, we sell high protein. We now call them milkshakes and high, and high protein iced coffees. Um, but our whole mission is we wanted to start by giving chocolate milk a clean slate. It's kind of evolved into uh, making people stronger and the planet stronger. So we're actually plastic neutral certified as a business too. Awesome. So where did the idea for this even come from? Like, Take us way back. I mean, did you guys drink chocolate milk? Every day when okay. I was younger. Love chocolate milk. And then why'd you stop? Because I wanted to still have a six pack. <laughs> like literally. <laughs> Sacrifices. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the idea was we grew up drinking chocolate milk and then at a certain point of our lives, we just stopped. But me and my business partner, Josh, we just kept drinking it and drinking it. And it's super high in sugar and it's meant for kids. And so we thought if we could help give it a clean slate, uh, we, we'd have a business idea. And... It started by just Googling, like, do people actually want like a high protein chocolate milk? And we realized the chocolate milk market's pretty small, but like protein drinks, it's like a pretty big market. And then 
coffee is a pretty big market too. And that was kind of like our aha moment. Can we make a chocolate milk that kind of serves the, the coffee market and the protein drink mar- market? I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah. So did you go to school for business or what was your background? So I like to say that uh, in school, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. And I, I went to school to learn what I didn't want to do with my life. And that was sit behind a desk and just like be on a computer all day. Like I liked creating things. So technically at Northeastern, I studied communications, which we just joked is kind of code for, well, at the time was code for me for nothing. Like I know communications, you can have huge careers, but uh, I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I always just like building shit. Like I was part of a fraternity and became VP. I was part of a community service organization, became VP. And it was just like being a part of a team and like building something was always so fun. And then after school, that's when I realized I wanted to start something. That's awesome. So you have this idea and how does somebody go from an idea to an actual product? So we know the services, we know how to open a fitness studio, a physical therapy, we know how to get people through the door, but product is a whole nother animal. If I told you guys right now, I would give you $50,000 if you could create something like a product, like what would you do? Figure it out. Trial and error. I mean, literally that's, that's literally what we did was we Googled, we asked people, we found this guy on LinkedIn that still doesn't know who the heck we are probably and just cold called him. And that's how we learned about ultra filtration, like which is the type of milk we use. We just talked really fast and we're super passionate and he just gave us information for free. And I'm not even going to mention his name because I'll probably reach out and want some sort of money from us. <laughs> uh, but it was that. And then it was already wanted to make it shelf stable. Google, ask questions. Um, just kind of figure it out. And that's still right now, we're actually going through a project where we're trying to get some information and it's Google, like ask questions, call everyone we know and just see if we can figure it out. And it's just been doing that over and over and over and over again. And now we obviously have, have more knowledge and more people that we can ask, but it's always been our process. I love that. So when did you bring in your first investor? Did you guys start making the product and then you started looking for investors and how did that work out for you guys? So... We, the idea was October, 2017 was when I, me and Josh came together and realized, all right, let's, let's take a look at this. We started like just figuring out what it was going to be, how we were going to going to position it. It was brand. It was, um, just throwing ideas down on a piece of paper. It was like the nutritionals of the actual product, like everything you see on the can, like we came up like from our brains, right? You have to start to think about that. And then when it came to actually formulating the product, we went down to Stop and Shop, now where we actually sell now, and we bought a bunch of ingredients. We went back to my apartment in Brighton, threw it all in a blender, tasted it, and we're like, we physically can't do this. Like at that point, we had all the time in the world and no money. Now, like we still like every business needs money, but like we have less time. Um, but when we would just wanted to spend our time, we didn't want to spend any any dollars. And then it was at that point where we're like, all right it's time to bring on some sort of formulation team. Um, and that's when we raised our first check. So that was mid 2018. And what advice do you have for people that are going out and looking for an investor? Like how was that first pitch you made? So Josh and I both had experience in the startup tech space. Like we had both raised money in the past and you're just not going to know what you're doing. Like, and you got to be honest about it. Like if you go in too confident an investor is going to be like, this idiot has no idea what they're talking about. But if you come in too kind of shy and timid and too like, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing, then no one wants to give you money. So it was being honest, but just constantly selling the vision. Like that was, it was always about the vision, the vision, the vision, like you're getting in early to something that we think can be very large. 
and then it was just they get banging down doors and trying to find that person. And so um, one of our first investors who we talk about on Shark Tank, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about this, was one of the first sales brokers for Chibani. And my business partner, Josh, actually met him on a golf course. Like Josh is a very good golfer. Still is. When he's too good now, I call him out. It means he's not working hard enough. But he was just like chipping on a, a like a putting green. And this old guy came up to him and was like, how the heck do you do that? Like blah, blah, blah. Started Josh's best sales guy I know. Um, said... The, the conversation ended with this investor saying, come back when you have the next Facebook because Josh was in, in tech. And we called him six months later and, and Josh said, we don't have Facebook, but we have milk. And he basically told us to F off, mm-hmm. but then sat down like, like meeting, meeting, meeting at a, like a country club in, in, in Southern Mass and like whiskey, how you imagine it and um, convinced him to, uh, to join the team. That's awesome. So that was 2018? So that was at that point, probably mid to late 2018. And then 2019, you went on Kickstarter. 2019, yes, we cool. did Kickstarter. So tell us about that because that's something that we've never done, but something that I'm sure helped you raise a ton of money in the beginning and just spread the word about what you guys were doing. So tell us about that process. Yeah, 100% Josh Belinsky's idea convinced me. I was like, I don't want to be a Kickstarter brand. I thought that it was uh, almost like a badge of invalidity. And for some reason, I had, I had no reason to think that. And Josh was saying, look at all these brands that have done it. Like they've grown so much, um, basically sold me on it. We ended up putting together a video. We're like, all right, for, this is the announcement to the world of what we're doing. Like no one knows we're building a chocolate milk company. We weren't hiding it, but like, you know, you're at a Christmas dinner and everyone's like, what are you doing? We're like, oh, we're, we're starting a chocolate milk company. And like no one knew that, right? You don't want to have that conversation. So th- this was the announcement to everyone we've ever met. So we're like, we got to do it big. So we made a, a video that we thought was funny. It was like basically me giving a pump up speech to like a glass of chocolate milk. Oh yeah, we me. found the video. Yeah, <laughs> we will be putting that on our Instagram. So definitely, look we'll for link that. the video. Yeah. yeah. So it was me, uh, and that like didn't even know what to do for that video. And one of my good friends, um, he actually runs a creative agency, and like he actually like helped build Tom Brady social, and he was instrumental to that video because I couldn't come up with an idea. And he was like, you were the king of pump-up speeches in high school football. Like, just do a pump-up speech. And so that's what, like that idea. Like, everyone's contributing however they can. And so did that speech, um, launched that campaign. And we had a little bit of press ready to go. Like, we were able to get the Globe, I think, like a couple more Boston media outlets. And just everyone we knew just had them blasted. Like, asking for favors. Like, we weren't, like, paying people. It was just like, can you help us? Can you help us? Can you help us? People blasted it out. Uh, we threw a, a party at the Bell in Hand in Boston which was a lot of fun. Um, we had a goal of 10 grand. We did it. We hit the goal that night at Bell in Hand and like sprayed chocolate milk everywhere. And it was a lot of fun. I ended up doing 50 Gs from like 1,200 backers, uh, which is great. Awesome. And then people would just reach out. Like we had grocery stores, investors. Um, like we had dairy farmers reaching out saying, thank you for innovating milk. Uh, but again, like our goal wasn't necessarily to innovate milk. It was just to create a great tasting, high protein product. But I think that's when we realized that using milk as an ingredient was so much more than just a brand. Like we were helping a whole community of people that felt like they were being kind of thrown to the wayside. Cause I mean, plant-based is still on the rise. I think it's, it's swinging back like real dairy a little bit now, but at that time I was like the peak of you know, Califia and, and all these like kite, what is it? Kite Hill and all these plant-based just exploding. So interesting. Yeah. So what was, what was your biggest competitor at the time? Was there really any competition for this type of drink? Yeah. So I think at the time, we thought we were building a healthy chocolate milk company. We thought we were building like something that was going to compete in the dairy set next to like your traditional chocolate milk brands. What we found is, is like we're building a protein brand. 
And a lot of times in stores, we actually sell next to coffee drinks because what we've also discovered, like every single time we launch something new, we discover something new about our products or brands. I think that's one of the also the, the keys is we thought we had the answers. Like if you told me four years ago, like what we should do with our positioning of our brand and our products, I'd be like, no, 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 no. We have it. We have it down. But then you just, you, you, the market will give you the answers to where you need to go. Like it's a winding road and you got to kind of let the, the market organically take you to where you need to go. And it, like, it could be wrong, right? Like it could be a one-off, but like if you're starting to get a ton of the same feedback, like you kind of like got to like let the waves take in a little bit. Um, so we thought we were taking, we thought we were starting a healthy chocolate milk company, but what we found is that people were drinking slate as a post-workout. People were drinking our caffeinated slate instead of their like Starbucks or Dunkin' Frappuccinos or like high sugar iced coffees. And that's when we realized like we need to reposition the brand. People want the, like the protein is the most important thing. The fact that we're milk, like jo- Josh and I might always be known as the chocolate milk guys to our graves. Like it might say it there one day, which we're fine with, but what, what we realized is that the most important thing about our brand is protein and the fact that it makes people feel strong. It's part of the routine. The people that are drinking Slate every single day to increase their protein 20, 30, 40 grams, whatever it is, like that is what is going to make Slate win. That's awesome. So in those early days, what were some of the biggest challenges that you guys faced? I mean, we still have so uh, I was just on the way here in, in the traffic dealing with a, a major operational fire that will be fine, but the, there are always going to be challenges. Early days in like when we were just launching like pre-launch it was getting the thing actually made like i uh i was listening to actually elon musk talk about this on rogan's podcast that people a lot of times people don't understand how difficult manufacturing is like everything in this room someone had to make whether like whether they were using a machine using their hands like actually creating shit is so fucking hard and especially when it's real dairy like putting you know, like we we have mutual investors with these guys, like the essential water guys. Like, look, putting water in a bottle, not necessarily the the easiest thing, but also not necessarily the hardest thing, right? Like, you have a machine that can do it super fast, but using liquid dairy, blending ingredients from all over the freaking planet into a can, and then putting that like getting that can to like the shelf of Whole Foods over here. There are so many ingredient steps, pieces of material. Like, this has a shrink wrap on it, making sure the wraps printed the right color. Like there are no like damages on anything that in the early days, we just like didn't think about it and getting the product actually made like the first run was so difficult. And like, we'll always remember that. Yeah. What was the timeline from the idea to that first product that you could hit stores with? We, we had one investor that was, uh, he didn't end up investing and he still calls us saying it was one of his biggest regrets, which we love. No. <laughs> he's, was he's that nice Mark guy. Cuban? <laughs> no, 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 we don't talk to Mark, but, um, we, uh, the timeline we, so the reason I mentioned it is that we had one investor say it was going to take, it's going to take you two years to get to market. And we're like, Oh, we'll do it in six months. It took us from idea to product on the shelf, probably about two years. And we were like, people were surprised we could do it so quickly. And again, a lot of it is because of the nature of our product. If you're putting, you know, carbonated water into a can or bottle. There are places you could snap your fingers and like, there are also already like places that have recipes. Like you can just toss a brand. Like we've had people reach out asking if they can do a slate branded X or Y. Cause like they have a formula ready to go. That's just not like what we do, but um, it just depends on what you're doing. If you're doing something that from a product standpoint is truly unique, it means it needs to be created from scratch. And that takes time. Like increasing the flavors, the sweeteners, like 10 or 20% up or down. If you're not there, like it might take you a year or two years just to get your formula right. 
So, so you have to have patience when you're making products. And then did you guys quit your jobs right away or were you still working your jobs while this was going on? Cause I feel like it would have been a lot of hours though you're putting in. Yeah. So we both, Josh went full time. I ended up like doing side hustles in late 2017, early 2018. Josh went full time mid 2018. So that when we raised our first check was when we went full time with the business. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And then you went on a little show called Shark Tank. Uh-huh. How did that happen? How did that come about? So their team uh, saw our Kickstarter campaign and we were able to get in contact with them. And we knew we were pre-product. We'd actually raised already raised a little bit of capital post Kickstarter, but pre Shark Tank at a valuation that we knew um, the sharks nece- wouldn't necessarily be excited about. And we, uh, one thing led to another and the entire time, like we were excited to go on the show, but we just had no expectations. Like we were just like, it's, there are a million companies. Like, we'll just, it's, it's fun to go through the, the exercise, but let's just not plan on anything happening. And then we got a call from their producers saying, unfortunately, you're going to have to clear your calendars for this week because we're flying out, you're flying out to LA, you're coming on the show. And it was definitely exciting. Um, I think Josh and I just as, you know, entrepreneurs, creators, whatever. It's, it's cool. Like we, we've seen the show of course, and it's like the super bowl of startups. Um, but we knew going in that there was a chance we were going to lose control of the conversation. <laughs> slightly, <laughs> slightly. And, uh, I mean, no, like no regrets. It's like the story. I think even the story now, whatever it is, three, four years later of idea to kickstart the shark tank to, you know, milestone C D E F G like People hearing that story, whether it's an investor or a grocery store, um, it, it, a consumer, it just makes people more excited to be a part of it. Um, so it was, it was quite the experience, though. So I've watched the episode a couple of times. And I rewatched it before interviewing you because I was yeah. like, I need to just refresh. Okay. And I thought you guys handled yourself so well. Thank you. I feel like there would have been times where I would have been like sweating. And you looked so confident, so calm. Like you just seemed like just another day, just another day in front of 20 million people, whoever, hey. however many watch that show. Yeah. Did you guys, how long did it take you to practice this pitch? And was this something that they like drill you on or you guys have full range to do whatever you want? So some things I can't talk about. Okay. But uh, they, the Shark Tank, the the Shark Tank team does a great job of making sure that everyone that walks in there is prepared. The Like when the Q&A, like you're, it's not, I think everyone knows it's not scripted. Like you can get like, no one knows what's going to happen. It's like a, just an investor meeting. And I think there was a moment there when Josh and I realized the investment wasn't going to happen. We kind of looked at each other during it at one moment, whether it aired or not. And we're like, are we going to fight for this? Or are we just going to like take their feedback and walk? And I think like we knew we had a great product. We knew we were early. We couldn't change the like everyone business has to start. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to devalue our brand because we were on television. Mm-hmm. And so we were just like, we like, Let's 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 just take the punches and go home and, and live another day. And I think a- after Shark Tank was definitely a low. Don't get me wrong. It's not like we walked out of there like, oh, we crushed that. <laughs> like we we knew it did not go as we wanted it to go. We knew that uh, it wasn't going to necessarily bring us a shitload of sales or a ton of positive press. But like, I, it was basically for us a net positive because like when it airs, we'll still get a little bump and like things will happen. Uh, part of the story. But I think in hindsight. There are obviously things we would have done differently, but I don't think like we don't think of it as like a huge whiff by any means. Yeah, would you guys do it all over again? Oh yeah. And I what mean, would you change if you went back? 
if uh, there's anything. Yeah, I think like I, I don't know if you've heard me say this before. Josh and I have an expression at NLB, like never look back. We're like, well, we like we haven't even discussed what we would do differently. Like now that I say it out loud, it's so funny. Like Josh and I have literally never even talked about this, which is like I'm being dead ass. But I think if we, uh, if you're asking the question, we would have just steered the conversation more towards the opportunity than the valuation. And like when it came down to it, if they're like, all right, I now understand Slate, but your valuation sucks, then we'll be like, all right, well, see you later. Right. At least then it, we would have been able to get our story across. I think that what, and again, I think in every conversation, like every conversation goes a little differently, but now even like, not just because of that conversation, but we've pitched a million investors now and the story, like the, the core of the business is the most important thing. And if an investor doesn't understand that, like the, the valuation, the dollars, like none of that shit matters. Like they have to understand the story, like, and the vision, like those are the two important things, like why you're doing it, what you're doing, what you're trying to change and like what it's going to look like in 10 years and why you're going to be there in 10 years. Yep. I'm actually surprised that not one of them thought about like how big the market is and like just even taking a little bit of the market share, how much money you guys could have made. I'm surprised that none of them kind of dug their heels yeah. in on that. I know the $4 million value, it was 4 million, right? It was, I, I think we asked for, uh, yeah, 400 over four. At yeah. The time. yeah. Um, I know it was high for them, but still like it's such a huge industry and nobody was really doing what you guys did at the time. Yeah. But obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and some of them probably look at that now and they're like, oh, damn. But I'm surprised you didn't get one of them because I feel like your pitch was good. You guys were so like lovable and just I feel like they do like people that they can talk to and that like are charming and stuff like that. And I feel like you guys were held yourselves so well that I'm surprised. Yeah, I, I will. I think there are other some other factors also. Like, again, nothing that I'm not like saying they this or this did or didn't impact the decision, but products they tried before or after or, or like before or time of day or like there are things that are like just human behavior that sometimes might impact someone's mood uh decision making tastes things like that um again i'm not saying that was us but like mm -hmm. i know that has happened in the past like we know a lot of shark tank companies and also they're sharks on shark tank they are extremely successful mm -hmm. do not get me wrong but other than roe oza who who uh like owns Kavu Ventures, like they're not beverage people. Like beverage is a very specific industry. Like it often takes a lot of money. Like there are companies similar to Slate or like further along that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And like as you raise more money, yes, the company grows, but you get diluted. It's just like it's a different industry than they're they're used to. Um, so I think we went in with an open mind. Obviously, we're you're competitive people. We're competitive people. When there's an investor there, we when there's an investor there, we want them to want to give us money. But like it just wasn't a fit, is what it comes down to. Did you guys go in with like one of them in mind or like hoping who was like your goal, Shark? I think we were open to any of them. I think uh I, I don't necessarily think we had a favorite. I don't necessarily think that we thought like we thought they could all add individual different types of value. So much fun. I'm sure there's so much that they don't show on air too, yes. right? Like how long are you actually in there? We were in there for, I'll say significantly longer than they aired on television. <laughs> That's awesome. And then when the episode did air, did you see a spike in sales or a spike in like website traffic? So I think we aired, I, we aired definitely during COVID because I, I know I was at my parents' house. Um, I think we aired in June, May or June of 2020. We aired... So from, from the time the episode was shot till the day we aired, the business had changed significantly to the point 
where people reached out to us and said, why'd you hide this? Why'd you hide that? And we're like, no, no, no. That was just the time that we actually shot the episode. So um, in terms of a spike, I don't remember on the day. I mean, it definitely boosted sales, but I don't think it like broke our warehouse like some other products. Yeah. So you leave Shark Tank less optimistic or less excited than you probably thought walking I, in. No, we didn't lose spirit. You we didn't lose spirit. We, Perfect. Let's say our egos were damaged temporarily, yeah. but our spirit was intact. <laughs> and then you're like, we got to get we got to get back to work. So then what was the next step? We flew to Charlotte for a meeting and closed them and closed uh, a retailer, one of our first major retailers. That was like a week later. That's, That's awesome. awesome. And then you get you got it on the sh- that was the first time you got it on the shelf. Yeah, so that was um, we launched with Harris Teeter um, down in like the Carolinas along the East Coast, um, Whole Foods in the North Atlantic region, so like New England and um, Roach Brothers, good old Roach Brothers, nice here, Mass. So, what is it actually like to get that shelf space at a grocery store? Yeah, so every so it. Most grocery stores, if there's five or more locations, call it typically, and this isn't the model with everyone because some like they're privately owned clusters, but there's typically a buyer. So there's, there's a decision maker that decides what goes into their set. So there'll be like a ready to drink coffee buyer. There'll be a dairy buyer. There'll be a, I don't know, like a, a rice buyer. I don't know. I don't know those, those buyers, but so like we typically, or there'll be a protein, protein shake buyer. And so we're pitching to those buyers. And so they are deciding what goes in their set, which is the the series of offerings in each individual section of the store. And so the goal is to get a meeting with them, close them, and then there's a reset, usually once or twice a year, where they'll the a buyer will reset the entire like set, basically. So the people in the store basically take the things out that are getting discontinued, put the things on that are the new products, and then you're on this you'd think then you're on the the shelves of the store but then a lot of times the cases they're in the back or like they just don't make it to the store and so we that's why out of our 50 employees probably about 30 are what we call area sales managers they're full-timers absolute badasses literally drive store to store and merchandise make sure we're on the shelf get cooler checkouts put up displays and like that is like those individuals are so instrumental to our success and like like we have like a channel of wins and they're fucking awesome. And um, that's what we realized early on is just sending product to the store shelves in beverage. Like the products just turn too quickly. Like if we're selling, like if we're selling 18 you know, units of this classic chocolate at, at market street Linfield per week, like and we're selling a 12 pack case, like a case is going to be gone in four or five days. And then the shelf would just be empty. And like maybe there are three cases in the back and the, the people at the store are doing so much. Like, yes, they want to keep their stores, their, their shelves, from being empty, but they're not going to notice it sometimes if slate's out of stock for two or three days. And those two or three days, again, if we're selling a case every four days, like, throughout the year, we could be leaving dozens, hundreds of cases around the country from being sold, just from being in the back. So it's like, it's a whole system. And that's what we've just, we're trying to master. I think we've done a pretty good job. Like our sales team are, are, are great at it. But um, so it starts with, in terms of the sales process, the buyer, getting accepted, hopefully, and then making sure that you get the pull through through people going to the stores is at least our process. And are you and Josh the ones that are going to those meetings and doing the pitches still? or So we have a VP of sales, uh, Mike from Popcornopolis. Again, a weapon, just very buttoned up. Uh, we've learned a lot from Mike. Um, he, was, he was early on. Um, but Josh still goes to the meetings. Um, typically, I love to sit in when they when they have me, uh, but no, I can't I can't necessarily go to all of them anymore. But uh, a lot of times, I will I will try to, to attend. 
Um, and then we have now a, a handful of salespeople. So we have Chad, um, who also does a great job. We have Brandon who does a great job and, and so, like, they're just people all over the country taking meetings for slate like weekly at this point. That's awesome. What is your day to day like now? So it's probably changed a lot since the initial Kickstarter launch yeah. and what does it look like today? Well, today I was sitting in traffic for about two hours. <laughs> we appreciate that. We appreciate that. No, it was, it was a good, I was able to work from the car. So we brought good. you some milk. Though. I know. There you go. <laughs> um, it really differs day to day. So I personally, so Josh oversees, um, Josh oversees sales. He oversees technically finance, but we kind of do a lot of the fundraising and finance together. Um, he oversees HR. Thank God that's not me. And um, then I oversee ops. I oversee marketing, which e-com sales falls underneath marketing for us. And I oversee like branded and also innovation. So it really like most of the days I'm on the phone all day, every day with Ron, who's my brother that runs marketing for us way smarter than me. Like he's, he's obviously great. He can do everything on his own, which is awesome. But like we collaborate on a lot of stuff. Um, I'm on the phone with AC, who's our first employee, who is our partnerships manager talking about partnerships, or I'm on the phone with Justin, our, uh, our head of ops, just like, again, making sure product ends up on shelf or at consumers ankles through D2C. Um, and then me and Josh are just, whenever I'm, I'm not on the phone with either of them, like Josh and I would just be on the phone, like silently, for like 20 minutes forgetting we're on the phone with each other and then just start talking like we're working from the same place. So just whatever needs to be get done is basically the day. Nice. So you guys have some pretty big names that you're partnered with now. Um, Tell us about your marketing strategy like early on and how that's evolved into some of the huge names that you have involved with your Instagram now and kind of how that's all come about. Yeah. So early on, we, we looked at what I actually just talked to someone on the Red Bull team. That's pretty high up. And, and like we early on thought of like looked at what Red Bull did, just cans and hands, right? It's just trying to make sure people have, have cans and we launched during COVID. So our way of doing that was through IG, like seeding product to anyone that would try it. And we would just tell people, if you don't like it, like don't post it. Like you don't have to post about us. Like just if you want a case, we'd love to send you a case. We still kind of do that. Like if people want to try it and we like, we think that they, they, they could be helpful to getting the word out to people by posting on social. A lot of times we just send them a case and then like you get a story out of that, which is great. Just start to build a little bit of a buzz. We did that for like the first year and a half of just like firing out cases because um, we just didn't have any money. And now it's shifted a little bit where like we still have this team of ambassadors that um, our, our employee Morgan oversees and they're awesome. Like they're always posting, like they're, it's almost more like this community feel. Um, so that like, that's one of our marketing channels. Then in terms of influencers is, is key to us. We, we try to find influencers that we think are basically like live the slate brand is like, they bust their ass. They're trying to be healthier. They're somewhat into fitness. Um, but like they just align with us too. Like if someone's a fucking a-hole, we don't work with them. Like it doesn't matter how many followers you have. Like it just, they're not going to be a good representation of our brand. So like we just don't work with them. And then in terms of some of the bigger faces, it's kind of grown to finding people that love the product and want to promote it. Like if someone already uses slate in their everyday life, like Max Crosby on the Raiders, he already loved our French vanilla. Like he was already drinking it. Like we, we sell to the Raiders and he, we got connected to Max and it was already part of his life. Now, like we have an official deal where he not only invests in the brand, but he's just like talking about Slate like he already was, but now he's just doing it publicly. So I think those are the keys is, is a lot of times like we, people that end up working with us are people that are already promoting it and loving it, whether they're doing it behind the scenes or in front of the camera. And then we just make it official. 
So like, and we've told like people that like want to do deals with us or, or whatever that like, you got to love the product. Like I had one NFL player say that he loves milk and he loves chocolate. He just doesn't like chocolate milk, like just not the right fit. Right. <laughs> um, but in terms of our strategy, it's always been a find people that love it. B we try to think of like different communities and who we want to represent us in those communities, like Max and the NFL, perfect, like absolute savage, like plays the end, like just like sober, just loves to like be a leader and, and exercise. Um, and I think it's just finding those types of people that are kind of like leaders in their community that just live the slate brand. That's awesome. And it makes a big difference when you really believe in your own brand. Like I love how on your Instagram it says, yes, I do drink my own chocolate milk. Yes. <laughs> that must be a question you get all the time. Yes. Um, and your branding is so clean and like clean slate. Mm-hmm. I love that idea and that concept. Do you guys, did you come up with the branding yourselves? Yeah. So me and my brother uh, created on PowerPoint, the uh, the original branding. We uh, Northeastern has a, a brand, a team of um, students that come together and like help with branding. And so once we had the kind of like the bones, we actually worked with them early on, which is great. So I Northeastern grad, go Huskies, go Huskies. And then since then it's just been evolving. It's like even this package that that we're looking at right here, this, this is, I'd say evolving in the next three months. Cool. Yeah. Was there ever like a really big moment where you're like, Oh damn, like we actually did this. Like we made it like slates a thing, like an aha moment. Did you go to a grocery store and be like, Oh, it's here definitely not a we made it moment definitely the first time we uh the first time we saw slate on the shelves was josh and i we took a photo and it was november 2019 at roach brothers downtown crossing it's the first time we saw on the shelf and I, i think that was a cool moment where it's like all right someone can now pay us for something that we created i think that that was a cool moment but i i say it all the time like we we got a long way to go i think we josh and i both live our lives like we don't want to be too risky. Of course, we always do what's best for the business, but kind of with the mentality that if we have to, we'll, uh, we'll go live in our parents' basements and, and risk it all. But no, I think we have a lot of good people around us and the business is uh, on a, a strong trajectory. Did you ever think about doing this without investors? Do you think that, I guess my question is for people that are listening that are like, I have this product idea. I want to get it off the ground. Do you think that it's doable to do without investors? Or do you think that you recommend people like just go find an investor and just make your life easier? Investors do not make lives easier. And I love our investors. I We have great people that have... An investor is someone that gives you their money to basically chase a dream. And we don't forget that. We, let, like, we know that. We understand that. Our first institutional investor was River Park Ventures and Spencer over there. I'm still like... I talk to him all the time. He's become a friend. And I, I tell him all the time, I will not forget you are... Not not Slate's first institutional investor. You were Josh and Manny's first institutional investor. Like I will always remember that. And everyone supports us, but and that like the idea of someone giving you money is to move the business forward. So if you can move the business forward without raising money, definitely like go to farmers markets. Like if you can create the product yourself, like even I think it was Health Aid. Like they were selling at farmers markets for like, I don't know if it was years or months or whatever, but for a very long time before they actually like started selling grocery stores and like people started Erewhon or you can start like local markets. 100% I would take that route if you can, because you're going to learn so much. And if you can learn before blowing money on things, and for us, I'm not not saying we like blew a shitload of cash, but we just like our MOQs are of, of a product like Slate is so high. We just needed money to actually do our first production run. 
But if you can do something like smaller scale and just grow and learn as, as you do, I think any founder would say that's raised money would say that if you can do it without raising money, you should do it. But like if you, if people will give you their money and also teach you, then take their money. What are some lessons you've learned working with investors that maybe you didn't know at the beginning or you've hard lessons you've learned throughout the years? Lessons I've learned working with investors. Because we've had a few people on who've had good experiences and then had not so great. And they were pretty open about, and I think some of them were like, they thought it was going to be more of a partnership where somebody's helping them when it's really, they're giving you your money, right? And they're stepping back. Um, And then some people, their partners were pretty involved. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, was yours just straight up money? You didn't have to, you got to do what you wanted. Yeah, it's different from person to person. I think you just need to set like any relationship in life. You have to set an expectation. So our first investor was coming in, he, we like almost like a third partner and the expectation that he was going to be at the time, like a pseudo VP of sales until we were large enough to hire our own, which he did. We've had most, I'd say the expectation from every investor is money and stay the fuck out of our way. Like, I don't want to update you every week because it's just a waste of our time. But I think it's just setting the expectation. And like, if we think someone's going to be a pain in the ass, we'll, like kind of set the expectation before working with them just to let you know, like if you're going to write a 25 K check into a a $10 million round, like we're not going to be able to call you biweekly. Like that's just not that we don't like you. It's just not a good use of our time. And like if we did that with everyone, we wouldn't have a fucking life or a business. So again, it's just like, it's setting the expectation um, with every investor. And then it's like, is this a good person? Like dirty money is worse than no money. Like if someone's going to like, if someone gives you a sketchy vibe or there's something off, like your gut's right. Your gut is not wrong about someone like there's discomfort there's being a little bit uncomfortable and then there's like your gut telling you that this is a scumbag like don't take money from a fucking scumbag it doesn't matter who it is tell us about so you have a team of 50 employees now we're close to at 50 tell us about how you built your team how do you find the right employees and you have your brother working for you which is awesome working with me i I wouldn't say wrong i'd say i work (laughs) to be careful about the wording there (laughs) no 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 um finding people oh man word of mouth starts with word of mouth like it's for us, a lot of it started with the same way you make friends. You just kind of meet someone. And you're like, I want to fucking hire this person. Like our first employee, Anna, her and Josh, my business partner had a mutual friend. And this was probably a year before we launched or months or whatever. And she wanted to work for us. And we're like, we don't have any money or a job for you. We were just running around in like my Brighton apartment trying to start something. She followed up like monthly. And then when it was time to hire someone just to like help out with marketing, she was um, like, I think at the time, like part-time working at a restaurant, like she just left a sales job and we hired her. And then now she runs partnerships for us. She's like, like running the UFC partnership and like our major like celebrity and athlete partnerships. And she's fucking awesome. And the reason why she works is because she's coachable. She's learned a lot and she's just awesome. Like people want to work with her and on marketing. A lot of the time when you're communicating with other people, it's just like, do people, it starts with, do people like you and respect you and think you're smart because everything else you can learn. Right. So we start by like, do we like this person? Do we want them to be a representation of the slate tag, like the slate logo, the slate brand? And then after that, it's obviously like, do they have the qualifications? Do they have the drive? Do they want to grow it into the next chapter of their uh, their career? Um, but then also a lot of it's just LinkedIn, like just grinding away on LinkedIn, like using job boards. How like again, if I give you a hundred grand to go out and hire. 10 people, you just find a way. Like for us, it's kind of the same thing. A lot of it now has been more inbound just as Slate's grown. But early on, like our director of ops, I think uh, my business partner, Josh, like sent him a cold LinkedIn message 
Um, and like the, the co-founder of Halo Top, Doug Bouton, who has been super helpful. Like he's the fucking man. Josh just sent him like a cold LinkedIn message. He ended up investing in the business. So it's just like trying to make connects with people that we think could help the business, whether it's an investor or an employee or anything else. And then just kind of keeping those warm. And again, Josh does that way better than me. Like Josh is the one that does a lot of that shit, but he's very good at it. Any tips on managing a team, especially as it's growing? It's a lot easier when you're small and it's close knit and you can check in with people every day or you even see people every day. But as you start to grow, that's when it starts to get dicey as you scale. I have always said, uh, I believe that Josh and I are both poor managers of people. We are operators. Like we, we, we run our business by doing shit. And when people need help, they reach out to us. That's why we also say we hire entrepreneurs. Like we hire people that are almost running their own little mini slate business. And if they need help, like they reach out to us. Like Justin is, is running a slate operations business. Like Anna's running a slate partnerships business. Like Morgan's running a slate ambassador and partnerships business. Like everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Um, but and like we check in, or they like, try to, but um, I think that's that's what's key. But then we do have managers like Mark, who manages our entire field team. Like he has calls with his team members like every month, and so he's on the phone with his team all the time, like checking in, seeing how he can help. But yeah, Josh and I, I'd say, are more like pure operators. So, what's the future look like for Slate, and what's the future look like for you? What's coming next? What can we expect? Oh, I mean, the Slate future. The goal is next year to expand significantly nationally. So I would say, I mean, we're here right now in the Northeast, but the goal is to have cans in more significantly more stores by call it the summer, which should be happening, which is exciting. Um, continue to grow stores. I think that we're always trying to, to come up with new products that don't distract us. And we launch them typically online. So we just came out with a, a bulk bag of a protein powder that... I will say on the record, I think it's the best protein pl- powder on the planet. <laughs> and I don't think I'm biased at all. But <laughs> We're going to have to try that. Yeah, we yes. have to try that next. So the Slate Protein Powder um, just came out, which is great. And we might have some other e-commerce products coming out. But our focus is we want to have the, the best protein drink brand in the world. like our, And just continue to grow stores, make it more accessible. We think we're betting heavily on the fact that protein as a micronutrient or macronutrient, excuse me, people are going to start drinking more and more of people are going to move away from high sugar coffees and start drinking slate. People are going to move away from like, if they want like a little something, something throughout the day, they're going to drink something with 20 grams of protein or more. Like we might be making some of the more protein. They're going to drink something with 20 grams of protein just to inject more protein in their diets. Like that's, that's what we think the world is going to look like in five years. So it's how do we get ahead of that? So that as more people move their diets towards high protein, we already have an offering on the shelf for them. You're speaking my language. This is like exactly what I look for. So I'm a huge Slate fan, but I want to know before we get into our fast five, what is your favorite flavor or favorite product that you guys have? Oh, they're like my babies. I'm not supposed to choose. (laughs) You can't play favorites. But I mean, like the company was created on the classic chocolate. So I got to go classic classic chocolate. What That's been guys? my favorite so yeah. far too. Oh no, actually, no, no. We did oh, a wait, taste no. test, which you'll see. We're going to launch it soon. <laughs> okay. We only did a couple because you're sold out everywhere. I feel like you guys no, are flying off the shelves. It. So we only got two. We did a, a taste test, and we each picked our favorite. So that'll be. You guys will see that when we coming watch soon. Episode. Yeah, coming soon. All right. So we like to end every interview with our fast five. So just five quick questions. What's one non-negotiable thing you do every single day? Sleep. <laughs> That's a good one. What's one bucket list place you'd like to travel to? I want to go back to Hawaii. Nice. Oh, I'm going there soon. Uh, What are three traits you think every entrepreneur should have? Empathy, 
self-awareness and grit. And what's the best or the worst piece of business advice you've ever received? Just because someone's rich doesn't mean they're right. I love that. And if you could go back, so if you could tell little Manny walking out of Shark Tank, just got his heart ripped out. <laughs> um, what's one piece of advice you would tell him in that, in that moment? You're good. You know, you know it, but you're good. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you and where they can find Slate? So we, I mean, SlateMilk.com. Obviously, you can order online or on Amazon. If you're in the Northeast, we're in most stores, Whole Foods, Market Basket, Wegmans. Wegmans just started carrying our French vanilla and caramel latte too. So if people haven't tried those, I'd go there. Um, we're in Stop and Shop. We're in Shaw's. We're in Star. So most stores in the Northeast, you can find us. And then if you go to our website and go to the store locator, um, you can find us there too. Awesome. Cool. We guys know where to find us at businessmusclepodcast.com and at businessmusclepodcast on Instagram. I'm DrArielle.dpt and you can find Elisa, Elise Kyra. We'll see you guys next week. You just finished another episode of the Business Muscle Podcast. If you found value in this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Your reviews mean the world to us and help us reach other listeners who can make a big impact in the business world. Don't forget to join our Business Muscle Podcast Facebook group where you can ask questions and chat with other like-minded entrepreneurs. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll bring you more expert advice and practical strategies to help you thrive. Thank you for being a part of the Business Muscle community and we'll catch you in the next episode.